Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. It is an honor to have Dr. Richard Taylor on the podcast. Scholar, professor, former Port Laureate and poet, writer, novelist, historian, and one of the kindest human beings walking on God's green earth. A true gentleman and a dear friend of the humanities. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Bill. We could start at many, many points in your illustrative life. I want to begin at the beginning and let you tell our listeners um, about you and about your interest in literature and nature and poetry, but it had to have a beginning. So tell me about your, your early childhood. Well, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I attended the public schools there. I graduated from Atherton High School in, dare I say it, 1959. And my most memorable high school experience, I can tell you, it's a different era, I was ejected from an assembly by my homeroom teacher for the unforgivable act of reading during a, a uh, convocation, you might say. Or, or actually, it was an induction ceremony for the National Honor Society, of which I was not a member. And did that uh, do what to your life at that moment? Embarrass you? you? A little bit. Actually, the vice principal, uh, there was no penalty. The vice principal spoke to me and and, uh, sent me on my way. Actually, now when I see someone reading, reading anything, I want to applaud and say, how can I assist you? But those were different, different, very different times. High school was, uh, Atherton High School at that time was full of overachievers, and I was not among those. It was a very average students, student. I read, I knew I wanted at some point to write, and I think I owe a lot of my development, such as it was, for ill and I suppose for better, uh, to one or two mentors, and most notably uh, my, my friend David Orr, who's been dead since 1989. And David was an insomniac and an omnivorous reader, and not a in, in very, very bright fellow. And he sort of, in his way, we grew up together, he took me under his wing, and uh, we were solid uh, pals for a long time, but he had enormous influence. He, he, he encouraged writing. He gave me, you should try to read this. You should read Carson McCullers. You should read William Faulkner. And uh, I did. And uh, uh, I suppose if there was a sort of seminal, I also had an uncle who lived with uh, my family was a lifelong bachelor. He, he was a semi-artist. He was art director of the Courier-Journal. And 
he was a late night reader and when I would come in he would he got me interested in language and writing words down and uh, uh, he himself had never gone beyond high school uh, my father, who was much better educated, was not really, he was an attorney, and, uh, but he was not a very demonstrative person. He pretty much kept his own counsel. We had a good family life, had a very normal, in some ways too normal, childhood. Uh, but I think I owe that uncle a lot, and I can remember dining room table discussions, things that don't go on so much anymore in most households. And what a source of learning something about the give and take of ideas, which is really uh, the enterprise that you're engaged in at the Humanities Council at a different level. Why do you say that your family and your growing up was almost too normal? Well, there was almost no real stress, no disasters, not that I would wish for those, but, you know, I joined the Boy Scouts, uh, I went to church, I sang in the choir, but then I camped out and uh, I learned to drink beer at an early age. And uh, there was a side of me which, which enjoyed having a good time. And I think that side probably predominated in high school. Were you writing then? You, you were a voracious reader, it sounds like. I wrote some you... terrible, terrible stuff in high school. And I can remember uh, sort of indulgent remarks by one or two of my English teachers. And, but, but in sort of a limited encouragement. But what I've learned since then is, just as with reading, when someone is writing and interested in writing, give them every encouragement because we all evolve as writers and a lot of the formative experience of high school is what sets the tone for the rest of our lives. So I want to ask this question, but I don't want to leave out anything because I know that after high school, there was college, and then surprisingly, law school, yeah. and then back to school, uh, to graduate school, and, and a lot of the writing I know took place at that point, but when did you figure out that you wanted to be a poet? Well, I think I always wanted to be a poet. I, I wanted to be a writer, certainly, and I wrote in high school, I wrote in college when I was at U of K, I participated in, I was one of the editors at one point of the Stylist Literary Magazine. And uh, when I came, when I, I got a master's degree at U of L after going to U of K, and I had no idea what I was going to do. This was about 1964 or so. And my father said, uh, look, uh, if you want to go to law school, I'll send you to law school. And I went to law school. I worked in his office. I practiced after graduating for nearly three months, mm. at which time uh, one of the hardest decisions I ever had to, one of the hardest meetings I had to encounter was uh, approaching my father and saying, 
you know, I don't think I'm really cut out for this. And to his, to his praise, he, he said, I understand. He had not wanted to be a lawyer himself hmm. for the longer story. But so I got a teaching job in Mississippi. I taught the first junior college there. I was there for about a year and a half and decided to come back to graduate school. And when I came back to UK, it was a much different place, 1968, 69, uh, Vietnam War, protest, uh, alternative culture, all of that. And uh, I was much more serious about school. I'd been through law school, which uh, I wasn't cut out for because of its sort of its adversarial nature. My brother's a lawyer. My kids are lawyers. I just wasn't cut out for it. So... Uh, writing between courses or while I was teaching and taking courses at UK became important to me. And uh, at the time I was writing my dissertation, I was fortunate enough to get a, a post, a kind of temporary job with the Kentucky Arts Council. And I worked, as I mentioned to you earlier, in the artist poets in the school program and which took me to literally one end of the state, uh, Pikeville, Kentucky, to the other, Marshall mm -hmm. County, Kentucky, and a lot of places in between. And I knew at that point that I was serious about writing. And while I was at UK, I met uh, Gray Zeitz, who was then a few years younger, and he was an undergraduate then, but we both had a mutual interest in writing. And I knew that he was training under uh, Carolyn Hammer at the King Library Press and uh, was learning essentially a pre-industrial age technology in typesetting and book design. And uh, that sort of rekindled a lot of my interests. And Gray very graciously published my first book, and it was yeah. actually his first book, too, uh, under Larkspur Press. Really? In 1975, huh. and since then we've we've had a an ongoing uh, friendship and, uh, and and a lot of interaction through through publications too. So you were uh, in the Arts Council's uh, Poet in the Schools program before you were published. I, well, I was published in, you know, in college, and I was probably, I think I was sending things out in graduate school. Publishing in, in literary journals. Or at or least I was receiving rejection. <laughs> you, you probably had a few of those too, maybe. Um, so at that time, you had long then uh, dismissed the, the law and, and adopted your career yeah. a, a, as a writer. Um, what was it, were you writing everything at that, at that time? You, you are very well known for cross-genre uh, work in poetry and, and your novels, um, mm -hmm. uh, your essays, mm -hmm. uh, your, your beautiful letters uh, that you write uh, for various and sundry causes and reasons or mm -hmm. maybe to a friend or a family member. Um, but, but was poetry, that was always at the heart of, of your writing? I found poetry was something I could do while I was doing other things, either teaching, making a living, raising a family. Uh, poetry I could write in a way on the run. 
uh, get something started and then let it uh, simmer or put it aside for a few days. And I found that writing something longer takes uh, not only more concentration, but a, a greater uh, time commitment, blocks of time, really, to make that work. And there are always distractions. And one of the, one of the blessings of reaching senior citizenhood is not one is being able to concentrate more readily and to have fewer distractions. Um, I just finished uh, a book, uh, uh, prose, I'd call it, uh, I've been calling it creative nonfiction, but it grew out of my experience kayaking on Elkhorn Creek. You know, I married, I had children, I moved to Franklin County, I taught at Kentucky State for 30 plus years, and then retired before fortunately having an opportunity to come on at Transylvania, where I, where I am now. Uh, but I'd had this interest in Elkhorn Creek, and I had an interest historically, I've always had that. And I started, over a period of 20 or so years, I accumulated a lot of information about an eight-mile stretch of Elkhorn Creek from the Forks of Elkhorn on US 460 to Peaks Mill Road, off of which I, I lived. And uh, so I said, you know, if I'm ever going to write this book, I'd better sit down and do it. So about two years ago, I pulled my notes together, I did some additional research, I had my own library. I wrote most of this from my own library. I collect Kentuckiana. I'm interested in Kentucky history. And uh, this book was so easy to write and so much fun. It involved some fictional elements. It was a little, to some degree, mixed genre, but it was mostly hmm. straightforward history, footnoted, documented stuff. Before I came here today, I had a phone call from the copy editor of this book who uh, had just a few more questions before he got it to the press. And I, I felt so good to have that done uh, behind me. But the experience of writing that book was never so simple. Uh, more so than anything else you've written, any of the other? Yeah, yeah. Well, Why? this is a book I wanted to write. Hmm. Uh, but you've always wanted to write. Yeah. Poetry and, and publish, sure. uh, uh, and your your poetry has uh, uh, has you've written narrative poetry that that tells a story from beginning to end. We'll talk yeah. about an example or two of that. Yeah. Uh, but but this book was different. Yeah. Well, it was um, it was something I was committed to doing, and and uh, it's it's like one's proverbial bucket list. Uh, it's something I wanted to get done and. When I started it, I realized how much fun it was. And uh, so I was working on weekends. I had, a, uh, I had a summer, you know, I don't teach during the summer. And uh, so it's been nearly two years and I kept finding additional chapters I wanted to add. And I wanted to take a place and explore it not just from a historical perspective, from, from Euro-American, African-American 
entry into Kentucky, but before that. So I did some research. I spoke to uh, Gwen Henderson, at, who's an archaeologist at UK. Gwen gave me a kind of crash course in paleo, Indian, woodland, Adena, Hopewell <laughs> cultures. And uh, then I had a chapter on surveyors. And then I remembered that I'd read uh, uh, a piece by a kind of historian uh, geologist named Willard Rouse Gilson, who is probably the most published Kentuckian. He wrote over 600 articles and about 60 books. And his name again? Willard Rouse Gilson. How interesting. He taught at Trancy for a time. He ran the Historical Society for a time. He was the state geologist. Half of what he published uh, regarded uh, old coal fields of, of Menifee County, B books like that, geological formations <laughs> along the Kentucky River. But he also had an interest in history, and uh, one of his pieces was about getting a telephone call from a farmer who lived just over the hill. I live above the Elkhorn Valley. And this farmer said I was digging a farm pond. I'd hired a bulldozer, and uh, I found uh, we uncovered some bones, big bones. And I thought I'd better call the state, and someone contacted Jilson. He came out, and he discovered the remains of a Pleistocene mammoth. Uh, the Pleistocene mammoth went extinct about 12,000 years ago. Mm. By various methods, Jilson determined that this, uh, this creature had died 30 to 50,000 years ago. Mm. And so it added yet another dimension to not just settlement and pre-settlement, but pre-humans on, on our continent. And I found that probably the most interesting uh, facet of all of this. So this book, uh, The Elkhorn, what, what's the title? Elkhorn, Evolution of a Kentucky Landscape. And the University Press of Kentucky is publishing right. and will and be available in the fall? I think it will be out in the fall, yes. Uh, in time for the Kentucky Book Fair? I hope so. So if you were writing, if you were writing, and maybe you did make a suggestion on the, the, the cover blurb about what this book is about, what would you write? Gosh, I don't think I could uh, reduce it to a blurb, but I, I would say it's about an exploration. It's actually a piece of topophilia, to give a fancy term. And topophilia was a term coined by the British poet, uh, is it, I think it's John, I can't pronounce his name, Bajetman. Mm -hmm. And it means literally love of place. So taking a place and learning everything you can about it. And it's not a novel idea. There have been, I know, of at least... Uh, three or four other books that, that attempt to do that. And I think we would perhaps appreciate place a little more 
if we took the time to learn more about that place and its, and its history. And Kentucky's particularly fortunate because it has such an enormous range and such color in its, its history. A lot of state histories, I don't want to uh, oh, diss go ahead. other states, but, <laughs> but we have a really colorful history. It's a stopping point for the westward movement yeah. and Daniel Boone, yeah. all of that, which is over-romanticized maybe. But uh, so it occurred to me that this would be a small contribution to my neighborhood. Do you call yourself a historian? Well, I, I don't have the discipline of a historian, and as I learned, especially from this telephone call today, I don't document as fully as I should. I used a lot of sources, but my documentation, I had to go back and check page numbers and article titles. But you've and, done a lot of work oh, um, on history. your family, and, and, and I want you to tell us real quickly um, about Buffalo Trace and, and about your work there yeah. and what you found and what intrigued you. Of course, there was a, a familial uh, connection, yeah. was there not, that, yeah. that might have... Yeah, uh, I learned, it wasn't until a few years ago that I learned my direct ancestor, whose name was Reuben Taylor, came to Kentucky in a... Uh, a carved out canoe hmm. with his brother, whose name was Edmund, in 1775. Hmm. And they came up the Kentucky River. And all of this was written about uh, in a journal kept by a young Englishman, one of the great unread Kentucky books. It's called uh, The Journal of Nicholas Criswell. Hmm. And it was published in the 1930s. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Criswell was a loyal British subject. This was right on the eve of the American Revolution. And he wrote, so many early journals are sort of telegraphic. Uh, they're very spare. This one was very full, and it, it, it <clears throat> included his account of coming down the river, it was a covered about a two-year period. And this Frankfurt visit, where I learned about Reuben Taylor, uh, maybe has six or eight pages, but it's, it's pretty detailed. Uh, he had come to Kentucky to look at property claimed by his uncle, whose name was Hancock Taylor, and Hancock was one of the earliest surveyors in the state. He and John Floyd and Thomas Bullitt and others, uh, uh, in effect, came up Elkhorn Creek, and have a chapter on John Floyd, and uh, opened the bluegrass for claimants, land claimants, mostly veterans of the French and Indian War or their assignees. Uh, and so a lot of those plots, learned, for example, it's so interesting. Uh, I've worked a lot, uh, one of my other mentors has been an individual named Neil Hammond. And Neil's a retired architect and uh, a Boone scholar and probably one of the great, the most knowledgeable persons living uh, about 
early land use in Kentucky, and he's done a lot of research in that also area. Also wrote uh, the sort of the definitive uh, book on uh, the Battle of Blue Licks, too. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. uh, Neil constantly dropped information on me, and he's incredibly generous. He gave me journals and, you know. Anyway, mm -hmm. the fact that sticks in my mind, every day when I drive to school, I now drive up Ironworks Pike, I don't have to get into a lot of Lexington traffic. I come in that way, I'm down through Georgetown. And Ironworks Pike, he told me, it runs almost due east, and it's the original surveyor line of oh. John Floyd when he, when he, you know, he used that as a baseline to survey these plats for these veterans of the war, two or 3,000 acres at, at a time. So I, I, every day I drive that. I'm going due east, and the sun's in my eyes. I say, John Floyd. Yeah. John Floyd, like Hancock Taylor, was killed by Indians around 1780. And he was one of those Kentuckians who had great promise that was cut off very, very shortly. He was literate. He was the colonel of militia in Jefferson County, and uh, he just like so many early, especially early surveyors, was killed by Indians. You have um, been such a good uh, friend of, of Kentucky humanities and of humanity, period, um, over your lifetime. And one of the uh, extraordinary and surprising uh, things that I knew about you that I've just discovered uh, is your fondness for Robert Penn Warren and your scholarship in his his writing. Um, I knew you, I have known you for several years, but of course it's been your poetry and it's been our connection uh, when I was at KET, when you were at KSU, and, and uh, your readings that I have attended and so forth and so on. But, but I, I just don't, I wasn't ever in your class, unfortunately. But I'm going to be. I told you I'm going to monitor that uh, oh, one of those classes come. in the help spring. You come. You'll end up teaching that class. Uh, but but your um, how did you was it part of your your early uh, scholarship at at uh, before UK or when you were working on your yeah. masters? Yeah, it, it dates from high school, and uh, again, partially through through my friend. Uh, I was introduced to Faulkner, and Faulkner, uh, I wasn't ready for Faulkner in high school. It was, he was a cipher to me. I knew he was great, but I had no idea how to make sense of it. And then studied uh, The Sound and the Fury, which is one of his more difficult books, when I was at UK, and, and then became sort of a Faulkner addict. And from that went on to people whom Faulkner had influenced, among them, Robert Penn Warren and a whole host of other Southern writers. And I was caught up in that for a long while. And I'd taught, I wouldn't say I was a scholar, but I'd taught uh, Robert Penn Warren uh, several times. And one of his other great novels, I don't want to get too far afield here, but in fact, the novel that many critics regard as his best novel, it's not. It's not the Pulitzer Prize winning not all, all the King's, King's men. men. It's World Enough in Time. And World Enough in Time 
Uh, I used to do a talk for the Kentucky Humanities Council on uh, what was called the Beecham Tragedy. And uh, it was a murder that occurred in 1825, less than 100 yards from where my bookstore is and the old capital is in downtown Frankfurt. So I did a lot of research on that and became fascinated with that story, as did, among others, Edgar Allan Poe. Hmm. <clears throat> who wrote an unfinished Senecan tragedy on the subject. But it is a great... Uh, Robert Penn Warren took the events, <clears throat> the history, and he learned it through Catherine Ann Porter, who at that time was a fellow at the Library of Congress. And she brought to knowing his Kentucky connection, she brought to him a... A confession of Jeroboam Beecham, who committed this murder. It was a 137-page confession. He tried to use it in order to get the governor to uh, pardon him, which did not work because the governor at that time had already pardoned his son, who had murdered someone else. True story. So somewhere, Robert Penn Warren said, it took me two hours to read the manuscript and two years or so to write the novel. It's a big novel and he he called it a novel of ideas. It's it's a fascinating piece, most of which was set in, in Frankfurt. So uh, that love of, the other the other great piece of Kentucky history that uh, that one other great one that, that Warren uses is his poem called Brother to Dragons. And I should say that at one point, Warren said to someone, he said, the novels are of Kentucky are to be written or found in its courthouses, hmm. records. And uh, the, this murder became the subject, uh, this was an 1811 murder in western Kentucky, Livingston County, uh, and became one of my favorite books written about Kentucky, especially the pioneer era, and uh, was written by Boynton Merrill, and it was called Jefferson's Nephews. Well, Thomas Jefferson had uh, was related to the Lewis family. And the Lewis family, as many other sort of prosperous gentry in Virginia, over-farmed their land. As a consequence, tobacco was the crop. It extracted, as you know, nutrients from the soil. Kentucky opened up. So the whole family, maybe two brothers, Jefferson's sister, and their families and slaves came to Kentucky and they bought a lot of land and uh, Merrill presents this portrait of what Livingston County was like and he spent 10 years writing the book. Uh, Princeton University published it at first, it was later, it was in 1976. Then UK reprinted it uh, and which is which was an act of uh, uh, that benefited everyone. It's one of the best 
books on early Kentucky, I know, but it involved the murder of a slave by one of these errant sons of, of Lucy Lewis. And there was a strain of, I'm not equipped to talk about this, but there was a strain of insanity in the family. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, do I understand that then Robert Penn Warren took, took that story and, 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 yep. and, and put it in poetry? Exactly. Did, does, it tell, does it tell the story? I mean, yep. is it, oh, yeah. how, how fascinating. Yeah. So, so, you know, although ironically, um, Warren lived most of his life outside of the state. In many ways, he never really left the state. Much of his subject matter mm. is drawn from Kentucky stories, Kentucky individuals, Kentucky history, even... Mm. Even Ald King's Men, mm-hmm. as you know, has the uh, what's called the famous uh, Cast Master mm. episode, yeah. which is set in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And if I recall properly, I think Cast Master is a student at mm. Transylvania University. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Transylvania yeah. College at right, that time. At the time. Well, we are uh, embarking on our Kentucky Reads program, which. Uh, people that uh, are our friends of the humanities, uh, our website of the podcast, will learn a lot more about. But we're going to concentrate uh, the latter part of, uh, of 2018 on All the King's Men uh, with a, a lot of activities. It, it'll be the, the 70th anniversary uh, or close to it of the, of the Pulitzer. Uh, and uh, I feel very deeply that all Kentuckians uh, should be aware of, of all of his work uh, of, of the novel, uh, of the novels, um, but, but he was a poet, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and, and an essayist, and uh, he did interviews, and, and he yeah. was... Uh, a teacher, a textbook, yeah. uh, he produced one of the innovative textbooks. Uh, editor he, uh, founded the Southern Review, uh, yeah. a, a magazine, which, which, is it still in publication? I, I think, think it I is. I think it is. I think it is, and he, yeah. oh, it had a... Um, it began in 1935 or something like that. There was a time that it was on hiatus. They did take a break. Maybe it was around the war. I'm not sure. But I think it's been revived now. And You said, this is on your Transylvania University website, a liberal education is preparation for a fuller life, not just a vocational expedient. It is the doorway to leading the life of the mind for a lifetime. And I've heard you talk um, a lot about the experience of, of learning. Uh, I, I've heard you talk about the kinship, uh, if, if that's the proper word, that you feel with your students. That uh, And you also say, I think, on the website that your uh, Glory is uh, as much learning from them as yeah, it is yeah. them learning from you in the classroom. Talk a little bit about about uh, ha- how valuable all of this is to a to a young person, uh, to 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 uh, adults as well that are growing, yeah. uh, and, and this whole experience of <coughs> of, uh, of scholarship in life. One of the things I think Transylvania and, and, and I hope most other institutions of higher learning aspire to do is to teach critical thinking, to 
give people a reverence for a culture, the culture out of which they come, so in many ways they can contribute to that culture as, as good citizens. One of the practical goals of a liberal arts education is to produce good citizens. And what that means is persons who are capable of independent thinking, forming critical judgments, and making, making arguments, standing by a position and not just barking or forcing an opinion or voicing an opinion, but, but having some depth of understanding about that opinion and what makes it significant. Uh, Trancy, I see doing that, and nothing gives me greater pleasure. I mean, I'm, I don't need to teach, uh, or at least economically, but I love to teach, and uh, Transylvania has been a real positive experience for And me. you've told me that your students today are, are eager and welcoming and yeah. hungry. Yeah for what goes on in the classroom. I, I think the students I encounter at Transylvania University are there intentionally. Or maybe they don't know it yet, but they are entering what I refer to as a genuine culture of learning. It's not about uh, seeing how little you can do. It's about learning and being challenged uh, to explore ideas and uh, to formulate a position that will create a better life for them and permit them to make choices, given the fact that so many individuals, uh, as the statisticians, statisticians tell us, will be working six or eight different jobs in a lifetime. And so I'm not so much a proponent of job training and careerism, and I don't think that's what the humanities is about. However, there are avenues with a liberal arts education that an individual can bring the skills he's acquired, she's acquired through liberal arts to any variety of occupations and professions. And I see that happen. And, I, and, and it's also a pleasure meeting kids from, you know, average Kentucky, average Kentuckians, whatever that means, uh, from areas of the state that sometimes have been disadvantaged, and seeing those kids eager and bright and thirsting to improve themselves and learn. And I see that every day. I'm in Transylvania. And Dr. Richard Taylor, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We invite you back uh, for an update at some time in the near future. Thank you, and uh, good luck with your teaching at Transylvania, and we will see you soon. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.